here with Ian D'Souza, who's been kind enough to come over my place to have a little chat with me about his life in music. Ian, how are you? I'm doing great, Marco. I'm oh, doing you. even better now that I found the place. <laughs> you didn't get lost, did you? I almost got lost. I almost got lost. But yeah, it's funny how the numbers don't on each side of the street don't kind of line up. But that's Apparently okay. it's a numbering system problem. I see. <laughs> I see. So you come from Kampala, Uganda, is mm-hmm. that correct? Tell me about growing up in Uganda. Oh, um, you know, it was pretty, I, I, I would imagine it was probably pretty much the same as growing up anywhere, really. It's just because that's all I knew at the time. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like just, you know, um, my, fam- my family kind of traveled a bit. Um, I, what did your dad do or what, what did your parents do? Okay, well, my mom uh, was uh, worked, uh, which was kind of like um, a little bit uh, not so usual. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she worked uh, first for the airlines, the East African Airlines, which was the national carrier of three countries. Right. Um, and after that, she um, uh, she left that job and she uh, got a job with this organization organization called USAID, um, which is United States Agency for International Development, mm-hmm. um, which is. It's called that, but uh, it became kind of clear by the end of it that, uh, or, but you know, when I got older, that the USAID was basically just a front for the CIA. <laughs> and my mom would, was just worked as a, you know, she was a secretary. Okay. There. And she always said there was a room up in the building that, you, like, nobody who worked there was, could ever go into. And there was always like a U.S. Marine standing by the door. Yeah. That, <laughs> that intrigued she, me. When did she figure out that it was the CIA? Well, you know, it wasn't till, uh we got to Canada um, that we actually started finding out a lot of stuff about, uh, uh, about USAID, that information that we wouldn't have necessarily got in wow. Uganda. So, yeah, um, because it was like, a, you know, a lot of, Sorry, I'm going to go on a tangent here, That's but fine. a lot of, uh, there's a lot of weird things with NGOs in Africa. Right. Um, and I think people are kind of starting to figure out on both sides of the story, A, that it's a good way of, you know, sort of getting people in there to find out, you know, in quotation marks, what's happening in the country. Um, and on the other side, uh, you know, people, the, the countries themselves figure out, well, they're going to get money for this. So, heck, just bring <laughs> them in here, you know? Right. So, yeah, that's kind of like the way that's... Anyway, that was my mom. I went on a big, long tangent about my mom. That's right. And your dad? My dad is uh, also uh, a kind of a, an interesting story because uh, my dad's family, like my grandparents are actually from a small place in India called Goa. Um, and Goa for many years, like 450 years, was a Portuguese colony, which is how my last name is Portuguese. Um, so his, my grandfather apparently left uh, Goa uh, to seek his fortune in the new sort of colony of East Africa. Right. 
and he left. I don't know any circumstances under which he left, except that I knew that he had a wife that he left in, in, in Goa to go seek his fortune. And he went to, um, to Africa, uh, and the last, like, you, the, the British built this railroad that went from Mombasa, which was on the coast, inland. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what they were trying to do is get, um, you know, they were trying to extract as much as much, uh, you know, bang for the buck, so to yeah, speak. Yeah. So they gladly footed the bill for, like, in the hardship of, you know, a lot of people to build these this railroad. Mostly not from Britain, though, you know. Right. Um, and uh, they extracted stuff from from the interior of Africa. So the, the other, you know, part of that is that they invited people. If you want to, like, it was kind of like the Wild West a little right. bit. You know, if you want to come... You, come and make a man of yourself or whatever, you know? And I guess my, uh, my grandfather did that, and he went there, I think, story goes, whoops, sorry, uh, to build a, a hotel. And uh, we, heard, we heard that the hotel thing soon went to pot, so to speak, <laughs> because he had spent all his money. So he, I don't know what he did, but anyway, he ended up sending for my grandma, and she went over, and uh, my, you know they had my my dad and his brother and his sister, and uh, and back then um, there wasn't like a lot of schools in in Uganda, um, so what used to happen is that people would send their kids up until whatever grade was the last grade, like whatever, say eight. Right. And then after that, it was like, uh, you got to find something else. So, uh, you know, my grandparents being from Goa, they sent my brother and his and all their kids past a certain grade to um, to India because that's kind of new. They knew people there and the people would be able to look after them. Right. And so there would be borders, basically. And that's when my dad, uh, when he when he was in in India he I think you know he was always kind of like a musician but so, so he was a musician oh yeah 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 no sorry uh yeah my dad was uh my dad played a lot of things he mostly guitar though um and he had a you know a really popular band in East Africa that used to kind of play like tour around and they would do gigs and stuff but he never ever did it kind of as a professional this band was all like, because in East Africa at that time, you couldn't really just do that. Right. There wasn't enough gigs or enough money to support that, especially if you've got kids and stuff, you know? So, but he always just did it on the side, you know, out of his just wanting to, you know, to do it. So he would put together these kind of, you know, bands that had like eight guys in it, like horns and everything. And he would write, he would write uh, charts for them. What, what kind of music was it? Um, it was kind of like, you know, it sort of changed like uh, through the years, like the kind of stuff that they did. My earliest recollection of, of his band was probably the, the fondest for me because he, that uh, version of his band had um, a couple of guys in it that were astounding musicians. Uh, one of them was from, uh, his name was uh, Sh- uh, Shelton Mazua, 
And he was an amazing trumpet player from uh, Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, and he was living in Uganda at the time. I don't know what he was doing there, but... And uh, my dad hired him to play in the band. And this guy was like... Um, he was like the sort of East African version of Miles Davis. Hmm. You know, and the thing with him, like the thing with having Shelton in the band, because of the way the whole sort of social hierarchy in East Africa at the time was, um, uh, you know, there was the, you know, the sort of Europeans up at the top, but then the Asian people or Indian people, mm -hmm. and, then the, and then the African people at the bottom. And, you know, that was their, was their right, country. Right. Yeah. So uh, he was, my dad, having Shelton in the band, was starting to lose gigs. Huh. Because they wouldn't, they right. said, no, you can't, you know, you can't bring him in here. My dad would go, man, he's, you got to at least listen, listen <laughs> to it once. He said, give us one gig, yeah, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but anyway, that's because of the way it was. Like, he, you know, he just couldn't, he couldn't stay in the band. How were you brought, like, what background influenced you? Was it, was it Indian? Was it Portuguese? Was it African? Was it... Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, because, um, you know, society at, at that time in East Africa was, like, really stratified. And, uh, and when you, th you know, I, th I guess people kind of want to feel like they belong to a club. Mm -hmm. given that kind of environment. So you, you, you either identify with something or you're out on your own. Right. And that's not a place that most people wanted to, or like to be. Yeah. So <clears throat> um, because I, I think probably I identified most with being, um, like on, on, a, on a kind of cultural level, I, I identified with being going. Hmm. Um, which in the, you know, in the, in the really interesting sort of sociological thing in India, Goans feel very separate from the rest of India, you know, because they were, had this Portuguese thing for such a long time right. and it, you know, it looks, they, their culture is different, but I sort of, uh, as a kid identified with that cause we'd always get taken out to like Goan dances and you know, this, and then we, the Goan people, yeah, there's like. Two million, I don't know, two million going people in the whole world, you know, but wherever they go, they have their own club, right? You know, so you know, and that's where they like really, you know, kind of preserve the the thing, you know. But you know, I was fortunate, uh, fortunate enough to go to a school like a primary school or grade school there mm -hmm. <clears throat> that had people from everywhere in it. And, the, you know, I, I suspect that the reason why is because the quality of education was really good, was good at that school. Um, but also, uh, you know, it, it had a, like a kind of, it was known as the going school. Like, so it was like Catholic and it was like really, you know, sort of um, harsh. Did you encounter any racism? And I just wonder, because it just seems like it's a reverse thing, that the people, the country that you live in mm -hmm. are the people who are probably least um, respected. In, mm -hmm. and, and I don't know how, how, did you encounter racism against them or against you? Or like, I don't know if you're believing, thinking in terms of 
being a going person, mm. is that a, do you deflect racism or does that encourage racism or does that not even exist? Yeah, no. Um, you know, I I was always I even when I was a kid, I uh, somehow I think I got it from my mom, but I I had when when I would see things go down or hear things said. Um, it always struck me as odd because most of that kind of stuff that was said or, you know, done that was like on the negative side was always generally towards uh, black people. Right. You know, and, you know, I, because I, like, you know, as I just said, I sort of identify with being going. It, it always, like, if you're in somebody, like, say you even believe this, if you're in somebody's house, you don't, you know, like, it's, you don't mistreat people. Right. I mean, you don't mistreat any, uh, people anyway, but, but yeah, certainly exactly. not when you're in the house. Right. You know, so um, that was, uh, I was never able to, like, really figure that one out. Um, but you weren't mistreated. Um, if I was mistreated yeah. because of the fact that I was a foreigner, yeah, um, you know, not really, because I think um, you know that that whole strata thing with the Europeans right. being on top, then the Indians, and then the uh, like, there was a kind of a period where there was a kind of a uh, even though Uganda had changed and had become independent, and there was a period where that kind of mentality sort of held on. Right. Um, so that even African people, uh, you know, black people would kind of, uh, you know, defer to you because you were, you know. I guess that makes sense. I mean, you, things don't change overnight. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's a little bit like a Stockholm syndrome, you know. Mm. It's like, you know, you give, well, I guess if, you know, if you're taught something for a long time, you just start to believe it, you know. Um, but, you know, when, uh, strangely enough, like towards like probably the time of, uh, Idi Amin or just before, um, it started to change and it was almost like, uh, when it started to change, it was almost like, um, sorry about this, Marco. Uh, <laughs> you're a popular it, person. Uh, well, I, I, you know, we all, I always encourage people to just keep it on so that people who are listening will just look at their phone thinking it's theirs yeah that's true exactly that's a that's a good that's a good thing but um oh yeah we were talking about uh when adman came in oh you, yeah you basically when, left or your parents sent you away when he became prominent yes right? yes and um did you know what was going on did it make sense to you at that point how oh, old, how oh old yeah were you? yeah i mean it was uh that was a really uh i mean you know stuff to be honest with you marco there was always stuff going on uh, in Uganda at that time because it was such a, you know, it was a fairly young country. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they had to sort out a lot of things in a short period of time, you know, like say, you know, what Europe had sorted out in, it took them like, you know, whatever, 600 years. Right. It had to all be condensed into this like, you know, period. And, you know, there was a lot of animosity, you know, because... Yeah, for many reasons, you know, like uh, borders being drawn 
and all of a sudden you're telling people, oh, you can't go over there to, you know, to harvest your whatever, because it's a different country. Did you ever feel unsafe? Was, did you ever feel threatened? Or um, the, the only time I felt threatened <clears throat> was, actually there was, a, there was a couple of times, but th- th- this one is the most, uh, um, we used to have um, the guy, uh, he was the, uh, the head trainer for the, uh, for the Ugandan Air Force, mm-hmm. lived across the street from us. And he was a guy from Israel. He was, and his name was uh, uh, Colonel Zev. And actually, I, you know, I used to go to... She, he sent his daughter to the same school that I went to. So, you know, there was like this Israeli girl in our school. And... Uh, um, but anyway, so Zev lived across the street from us. And apparently he was... Uh, when he was in his job as trainer of the, of the Ugandan Air Force, he was hard-ass. And he really worked those guys. Right. So um, anyway, there was a there was a time when, you know, I won't get into a long story here, but that Idi Amin had a bee up his bonnet about Israel. So in his characteristic way, he gave all the Israelis seventy two hours to get out of Dodge, basically. Wow. So Zev had to like pack up everything, and he you know he had been there for a while, his family and everything. He had to pack up everything in basically two and a half days. Um, so, which he did. In the meantime, all those guys that he was training at the college, uh, one night decided, hey, Zev's has to leave, you know. Well, now we're going to show him who's tough. Really? You know, so they, I guess they all go to a, a bar and they drink and they show up in front of Zev's house uh, in a armored personnel carrier. And, um, and this is like, you know, this is like at one o'clock in the morning. And, you know, I heard it. I heard the thing come up the road because you can't, right. uh, like, you can't mistake the sound of that thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like I heard the hatches open and blah, blah, blah. And then it was like all hell broke loose because they start shooting at, uh, at Zev's house. Because they're drunk, they don't care. Like yeah, we're yeah. just gonna shoot at his house, you know. And uh, so they do that. And uh, my dad, uh, I guess, got up, and you know, my parents sort of put us under the beds, and because literally it was across the street, yeah. and there's like probably twelve guys with guns all unloading on this guy's house, and all and, wasted. Yeah, and all wasted. So it's it's like it's like the loudest thing you've ever heard in your life. And, um, you know, so my dad, like, in, you know, I guess he peeked out the window and stuff and he saw the light go on from inside Zev's house. And he's thinking, you know, my dad's, I'm sure my dad's thinking, what is this, is this guy out of his mind? <laughs> you know, so when the light went on, the shooting stopped. Um, so my dad watched and uh, apparently Zev... Came, came out, opened the door of his front door and came out in his uh, skivvies with a pistol and he sh- fired it into the air. And these guys all packed up, got back <laughs> to the APC and left. Jeez. Yeah, this is how badass this, is how badass this guy was. But he did, uh, he did end up leaving. 
and the house was a government house, and it was all shot up, and they never fixed it. Hmm. Wow. What? So I would presume music came into your life through your dad. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So, I, so it was just a natural thing. There was probably no moment of discovery. It was just always there. It was. It was always there. There was like they used to. My dad's band used to rehearse at our house. So um, there was always like kind of instruments hanging around, like amps and you know basses and right. all kinds of stuff. So, and you know rehearsals were always like kind of a fun time because you know my mom would have stuff prepared and so when the guys came over everybody'd eat and then they'd start rehearsing and then after that there would be like a kind of hangout where there would be like a couple of drinks and stuff right so it was like the after part that like me and my brother would kind of like be privy to you know and, and did like, you pick up instruments at that point or oh yeah yeah like uh they would just leave their instruments at our place so we'd always, like my brother and I, my brother's a bass player too. Um, and so we'd always kind of pick up, pick up stuff. And it just turned out that my brother was actually picked up uh, the guy's bass and would fool around with that. And I'd, uh, you know, I'd get behind the drums. So I actually, I actually started out this whole thing as a drummer. You know, and like we'd always, like me and my brother would kind of like jam together. You know, I, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I would, like, make some noise, you know? So, yeah, so this, there was always music in our... And, and you know, my mom was uh, was actually a, an avid, avid music fan. She was, like, would go out and, like, buy records. And um, and she actually had a really good voice, too. Because one of her favorite albums, um, and a huge album, like, in my... Uh, in my early years was because I heard it. She'd play it all the time. Was the uh, the uh, Ella Fitzgerald live in Berlin mm. record? Right. So yeah. So we'd always uh, you know you know we had that part of it. Like my mom was really into into jazz. You know my dad was too, but not you know he would listen to like and play like everything. So when you first got into music, what kind of stuff did you play? What and when of, did you get into music? Uh, as a profession, you mean? Or yeah, before the profession, maybe. when you first decided, hey, this is a fun instrument to play. And yeah, well, you know, that was probably a, um, in, in high school, like in grade nine. And this uh, was there or oh, here? No, this was, this was here. Okay. Um, yeah, because like uh, my, my uh, high school, uh, my high school over here was actually a, a, a pretty special high school. Um, in that uh, the the first year I was there was in grade nine. There was only one grade, grade nine, because it was a <laughs> good thing that worked yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the you know the 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 planets lined up, you know. But uh, so you know we only had like 120 students in the whole school. Was it a free school? No, it was uh, it was actually a Catholic school. Oh, okay. Uh, and it was a brand new school and. We had been, the school had been given uh, this building by the Scarborough Missions, like the Jesuits. So we were only given half the building. So they said, well, we can't really do a whole school in this half building. So we'll just do grade nine. So, yeah, so that's, I started going there. And, um, um, you know, the whole, the whole kind of, this was in the, 
early 70s. Right. So this was when, like, you know, there was a whole kind of, like, after the 60s, there was, like, we had kind of started to figure out some of the exploration and, you know, whatnot. Yeah. And a lot of our, my, my teachers at that time were heavily influenced by it. They were young. They weren't, they were, like, maybe, you know, whatever, 10, 12, 15 years older than us. Right. Because it was a new school, right? So, and so, you know, they brought a lot of stuff that was important in their lives and into that, into the atmosphere of that school. So, you know, uh, music was, man, my, my music teacher in that high school was probably one of the most inspiring uh, people I've ever been around. Because he was, again, like he was probably maybe 10 years older than us. And um, he would, uh, he was a huge jazz he was from uh, Romania and he was a really well-known jazz piano player mm. uh, but because of political things and stuff right. he he had to get out of there and he ended up in Canada and he ended up teaching um, but man he would uh, he would bring in all kinds of and our tastes in music um, were very similar um, which is why we got along so well too but he bring in, you know, all kinds of really great records, um, and we, me, and a couple of friends of mine would would, he'd go, hey, you want to come up to the to the office after? I've got, you know, I've got the new Weather Report record, you know, which we hadn't got to because we hadn't had enough money at that point. But he was teaching, so <laughs> right, you right. know, so so he would we would go up to his uh, his office and he put on the record, and I'm gonna go, I don't know if I should say this or not, but. Ah, what the hell? You can you dig it out if you want. But you know, <laughs> I'm not taking he'll it pro- out now. He'll probably he'll probably get mad at me. But he he'd always we'd, we'd go into his uh, into his room and we'd we'd put on the record, and um, he smoked, and he knew that we smoked too. Right. So he'd pull out a cigarette. That's back in the day when you could smoke indoors yeah. in anywhere. So he'd, he'd be smoking, and we'd all be listening to the records. But he'd notice we'd all be looking at his cigarette because we could afford to get cigarettes. <laughs> so he'd go. Okay, you guys want one? So right. we'd 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 sm- and then he'd lock the door. Ah, the good old days. Yeah, the good old <laughs> days. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine what would happen if you even thought about doing that now. You know? Yeah, that's a shit. And now, are you playing bass or drums at this point? At that point, I was playing bass. I I had started playing bass. And what is uh, it about the bass that drew you to it? Um, you know, after. Uh, after like kind of a short foray into with, well, you know, I told you I started out playing drums, but then, you know, there was never drums anywhere. So, but there was always a guitar, like mm-hmm. somebody always had that. So I, I, you know, like friends place or whatever. So I kind of like picked it up and I figured out things, you know, I figured out what the notes were and all that kind of stuff and, you know, little rhythms and stuff, chords. Um, and then I, I started hanging out like, with guys that uh, in grade nine that were into music, like the same kind of music that I was into, and they all played, mm-hmm. and so did I, you know. So they said, they, you know, they said, well, let's get a jam together and come over to my place, you know, like my dad's amps here and stuff. So I'd go over and I I borrowed my my brother had a guitar because uh, he played bass already, so, but he had a guitar, so I'd borrow his guitar and I'd go over to my friend's place. And I play like you know, my friends saw me coming to the door, and they I'd open the thing. There was a guitar, and they'd all look at me with this you know one one guy would look at me with a scowl like, I play guitar, 
kind of thing, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, we figured out, you know, in, in, in those, like, my friend's basement that somebody was going to have to go. You know, and this guy was like, you know, a lot better guitar player than I was. Like he, like he knew, like, you know, kind of like lead guitar kind right. of stuff. I was more interested in the like the, the rhythm. You know, so uh, I just naturally, you know, uh, sort of gravitated towards playing like rhythm parts and, you know, sort of like bass note stuff because there was no, you know, there was one guy playing, you know, sort of in quotation marks lead guitar. Right. And back in those days, you know what that sounded like. <laughs> you know, and there was a guy banging on drums. So there was like this huge mix, like uh, thing missing for me. So I just kind of fit into that thing, whatever it took, you know. Um, and then one day they convinced me. They said, listen, man, it's bringing the guitar. Why don't you bring your, your brother's bass? So I did it. I, I took the bass and we just kind of figured it out you know and I always started taking the bass then and I just started playing bass and then once I started playing bass I started listening to music in a whole different way and are you still listening to a lot of jazz at that point or are you now uh well you know what at, at this point um these these uh guys that I hung out with they were all into this like uh this kind of new music like that was happening at that time which was kind of like that whole jazz rock thing um but it was you know it was it was kind of like the jazz rock thing that was uh in my mind that was really cool and it was the it later became known as fusion kind of thing and and i that wasn't so great for me you know i don't know what the difference is oh well i think I think what it is, in my mind anyway, like the delineation between jazz rock and fusion is kind of like uh, jazz rock to me was like the whole thing, like coming, like having a solid foundation in terms of guys actually being part of bands that were real jazz bands, mm-hmm. you know, like Herbie Hancock and, you know, Wayne Shorter, right. uh, you know, Joe Zawinul. Chick Corea, they all came from a pretty big ground. I mean, they played with Miles yeah. and, you know, everybody, you know? So, uh, they kind of like, you know, sort of uh, became the vanguard of this movement that was like jazz rock, which was, you know, I would I would imagine they were all like in their 20s or 30s or something and that played jazz, like which was with probably the best that you could probably do. Mm-hmm. You could probably play with so they probably went oh man you know i'm 30 or whatever there's all this stuff on the radio that i like uh i wonder what it'd be like if i maybe applied jazz harmony to some to that sly stone groove or whatever you know yeah so they then to me that was like the most uh you know that was like a it was a new thing it was breaking down a new barrier you know Later on, I think what happened, it, it sort of became an idiom by itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it, I don't know, I don't know what, when that happened, I don't know what happened to the music. It just sort of became kind of less interesting. What year would this be? Um, 
it's hard to kind of pinpoint, but I, for me, it kind of started happening in like the late seventies, like 78, 79. It sort of became like this thing, like, like people started using that term fusion more. Right. But at the same time, we're talking disco's coming in, punk rock is just around the corner. Mm -hmm. Classic rock is kind of dying out, right? Yeah. And, and jazz fusion or whatever isn't huge. Yeah. But it's out there. Yeah. And, you, and in your mind, you're thinking that's the, that's the musical pursuit that you want to follow? Um, you know, well, at that point, uh, like the, the whole jazz rock, you know, whatever slash fusion thing, uh, the one thing that it, uh, that, you know, it's it sort of afforded for kids like myself uh a was to be different right. and and that was that goes a long way when you're like yeah. you know when you're 16 or whatever you know 17 but the other thing is that it it uh it it's sort of um supplied a, a kind of a benchmark for technical proficiency so to speak um so if you could get like these whatever or learn these fast lines or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, you could at least, like, it It became kind of like an exercise. So you, you could feel really good about the fact that you learned this, like, fast line or whatever that's, like, really impressive and stuff. Give me an example of something that you worked really hard at, took you a long time to learn, and when you mastered it, you just thought, yes. Uh, well, like, for me, the first one that I actually remember doing was um well spending a lot of time on and like getting it uh was probably Jaco Pastorius's uh Teen Town mm. because that was like such a you know it was such a bass heavy uh thing you know the, it's the bass playing the melody that is also the bass line but like practically the whole rest of the band is playing the bass line you know so as a bass player, I said, well, if I want to do something, I probably should learn this. Okay, am I correct to assume that as a bass player, Jocko was it? I mean, he, uh, he changed how bass was played and... Well, uh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, you know, there, for me, there, there was like, Jocko was like a, like a hit a whole new level of not just bass playing, but just bass players as musicians mm -hmm. because he wrote uh, like his his compositions are uh i mean other than the fast stuff but just like he like his big band compositions to this day and forever i think will be absolute like masterpieces mm -hmm. um and i think like for me when i look back on it now like I first learned about, you know, I, I, like the proficiency thing was, was one thing. I mean, he was absolutely incredible. Right. And doing things on a, a, a you know, I'm all basically making the whole band play the bass line and that turns into the feature of the, like the melody of the song, you know? I mean, that's pretty insane. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I think there's a lot of like sort of incremental uh, things that led up to Jocko. Right, for sure. Uh, you know, bass players that had, it, you know, and I've sort of, like, Jocko was like the ta-da moment, you know? 
And then you get past that and you start to realize, well, Jaco himself, the Tada moment, comes from something else as well. And you start to uh, investigate those things. Right. You know, or if or if you already knew them, you reinvestigate them and you go, oh, man, OK, I now I get it. Mm -hmm. I find it interesting because in, in music or art, you know, there's a point where something comes, somebody comes along and changes it. Yeah. And it almost seems like in, in that genre or in that musical discipline, everything has changed after this one person. Like Hendrix has changed things. Sure. Like Van Halen has changed things, whatever. Sure. So, so after Jocko, yeah. is there a, another bass player that's out there that has changed things um, in your mind? Like, I think, I, I, you know, honestly, that's, that's a difficult question because I think, uh, like, Jocko's whole changing of the instrument was so, sort of, it was such a quantum leap. Mm-hmm. In just the way, uh, not only like bass players played, like the, the way they approach their instrument, the tone, um, and also just you know now uh, it was more evident that that bass players were musicians, like as a whole. Right, right. You know, uh, I mean, you know, Ch Charles Mingus wrote unbelievable things, and there's a whole slew of bass players that wrote but it was never like it just never had the kind of bang that that Jocko had or if it if it did have the bang it was like in in like a jazz thing or a whatever you know it was like right. very like Jocko like just sort of uh broke down a lot of barriers where a lot of people from different musics and different instruments even not just bass were going wow how old were you at this point when you... When I first heard Jocko, I was... Uh, so it would have been on the... I'm trying to remember the album. It was... It was. I didn't hear his uh, his solo album first, which was the one that broke him. It's just uh, it's just called Jocko. Yeah. Um, I heard him first on a, on a Weather Report album uh, called uh, Black Market. Right. Uh, and that was a really great album and really interesting album because Jocko wasn't on the whole thing. He was on about, uh, I think like four or five, maybe four tunes or something. Um, and it's really interesting because I remember when I got the record, um, reading the back, I always, back then we always went, scoured everything, right? So reading the, the liner notes and, and I, uh, I remember thinking to myself, oh, Jocko Pastorius. He's on, you know, half the record, which means he's like a new guy. And he's got one composition on it already, which was amazing. And I remember, I remember that, reading it on the subway, <laughs> taking the, the record home. I hadn't even opened the, uh, right. the thing, you know, because that's what we do. We'd go down and buy records, go home and just make up in our minds what we thought that record was going to sound like. And we, while we were doing this on the subway, we'd, uh, you know, we'd read the liner notes. Right. And then we'd get home and it was like the big moment. You know, you'd take out the thing, you put it on, you put the headphones on and, and you listen. And uh, when I, I remember listening to that record for the first time, I, I went uh, to the tune that he wrote on it, you know, because I'd heard about Jocko and stuff. And, 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 and it was a a really amazing song from that record called Barbary Coast. And again, it was the same thing as 
the Teen Town thing, in that he took he basically his composition made the whole band play the bass part, and it was just so uh, to me like mind blowing. Are you thinking at this point that you're going to be a musician, or is it still are you have you decided at that point? Um, oh, I, I, yeah, I, I pretty much knew I was. This was what what I was going to do. Um, you know, I didn't know how I was going to do it, except. You know, I should say, though, Mako, back then, it wasn't such a big leap to make, mm-hmm. to, to make music as a career. Um, but your dad was a musician who didn't make a, a living out of it. Right. Yeah. So knowing that, yeah. what would have changed in your perception that said, this is possible? Well, the biggest one is probably just growing up here mm. and, you know, seeing that you can you you can make a career out of it. You can, you can do it. Um, and your parents keep reminding you it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be... And maybe you should, um, you know, do something else just in case the thing doesn't work out, which I did. And like an idiot... Not like an idiot. I love it. But I, I chose... I remember the look on my mom's face when I told her. You <laughs> this know, is she, the backup plan? Yeah, this, yeah, yeah. This, this is, exactly. This is the backup plan. She never said anything, though. She, you know, she just said, okay, well, if that's what you're going to do, okay. Uh, so it was film. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I went to, like, you know, I, it was so, like, it was not like I, I even uh, said, okay, I'm going to go to film, so I'm going to get good marks, and I'm going to go to University of Toronto. And, and so being like a filmmaker, is that what you call Well, I didn't really know at that point. All I knew is that I wanted to be a musician. Right. And my parents were asking me if I would have a backup plan. So I thought, oh, this is a pretty good one. So I did it. Right. But they said, listen, man, like, we're not paying for you to go to university. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay. Uh, they said, okay, you can go to community college. But you got to be doing something with right. yourself. So I, I, I went to Seneca College and I took, uh, I think at that point, um, it was like film and this other, uh, this other new kind of uh, course heading, which I, I didn't quite get, but it was called audiovisual techniques. Hmm. Okay. It was film and audiovisual techniques. So, yeah. So at this point, are you playing in a band? Are you, how much music are you doing? Uh, at the at the at the time that Jocko yeah. came around. Well, um, at the time when you decided that you wanted to be to be a musician. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, at what age was that? I, you know, I'd have to say it's fairly early. Like, it's around that time. It's like fifteen. And you're thinking this because of what? Is it just because it's cool? Because you played and you got feedback on stage because well it's kind of all those things um it was it's it's more than that though because i remember when i was uh but in actually around that time uh these another but group of buddies that i had we'd get together and we'd play uh and it was another kind of basement situation you know and they also ha- happened to be the buddies that, that I'd go downtown and buy records with. Right. So one of the things that we'd do uh, would be like, we'd go, hey man, let's go over to you know, uh, Ron's place and uh, listen to all the records. 
and just jam. You know, we all played, like I played with a, my high school stage band and stuff. So we like, you know, the right. drummer at that time was from the stage band. So we all kind of knew how to play. Um, but then we, you know, what, what we ended up doing uh, at those jams, which was, it's an interest, interesting thing because you're reminding me of this now, but is that you're, um, we would, we would play, but also we would play the records that we j just bought and we'd jam along with them. Right. So, and it would, you know, be totally spontaneous, you know, whatever, you know, eating pizza and somebody put on a record and you'd, something would hit you. Something in whatever song would hit you. So you'd, you'd kind of want to figure it out. So you'd go over and you'd figure it out while it was playing. And uh, somebody else... Did that else, come easy to you? What? Uh, did that come easy? Yeah. Oh, I, totally. Yeah. Totally easy. I, um, you know, it's funny, like music for me has always been uh, something to do with my ears. Um, and, yeah, I've never really uh, been able to, I don't know what, I don't know if I'm dyslexic or something or I'm not dyslexic, but I'm just never able to make the leap between my ears and my eyes when it comes to music. So like the whole reading thing for me was, it, I, I, I don't really read. Well, that's interesting because you you do studio work for a while. Yeah, I presume. Have yeah, you talked to some studio musicians that that's kind of a key component to doing studio work. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's it's really funny. Uh, like I, I think I just happened to be lucky enough to like a, a, any of the stuff that I've done in the studio um, has not really required me to be able to read so much obviously because I don't get hired for stuff that we right. need to read because people know that it's not my strong suit, you know? <laughs> right. So, um, so it, it, and, and, you know, people hire me for, for a different reason, I think. Um, and, and I'm not saying that for whatever. It's like, I wish I, I wish I could, didn't have that thing that makes me go, I can't do this. Right. You know, like, you know, I, and it's through, you know, my, my life, I've, I've thought about it. Thought about it. I said, maybe I should, you know what, maybe I should just, now you can get apps on your phone yeah. that teach you how to do it, you know? And I just get like, you know, I went to, I stepped my dad when, when I was going to, he said, well, look, what do you want to do? This is before the film thing. Right. He goes, listen, what do you want to play? And, you know, I'd been carting my brother's bass through all this. So I said, bass. So he said, okay, well, if you want to do, if you want to play bass, you got to, like, you got to learn with somebody. You got to, I can't, you know, I don't have time. Right. So um, he sent me to a bass player that I studied, who was a really great bass player from Toronto. And, you know, I studied with him and uh, I learned at that point. This, I'm probably like about 13 or 14 at this point. Right. And uh, so I, he would give me all these exercises to do, um, reading exercises. So I would take them home and I just hated doing them because it was like, like, you know, Mary had a little lamb yeah, and, yeah. you know, whatever, you know, twinkle, twinkle, little star, which, which you've got to do when you, uh, and I, I would just like, and then I'd be like, you know, I'd be listening, I'd be in my head, I'd have like this, <laughs> this cool bass player from the weather report record I had bought, you know, <laughs> and, and I'd, I'd start, you know, whatever, trying to 
do this twinkle twinkle little star and I'd, this bass part would come to my head so I'd, I'd go ah, forget it. let me try and figure out so I'd go and listen to the group and try and figure that out and then at, it was at that point where I you know mistakenly thought oh maybe I shouldn't just I should just forget about this this reading thing it's just so painful well but uh, it's it's gotten you so far right like and it's done you well so well far. yeah yeah but <laughs> but i you know i i again you know thankfully people uh you know are are kind enough to not uh you know, sort of push me into that into the reading thing i mean but you must have worked really hard to to get a bunch of studio gigs and to do composition for film theater and dance to be in so many different bands like how does that happen like well, well um i it's, i think it's like how how uh does it happen that i do it or that i'm yeah. like interested in that well or? no just the interest i can understand but just the fact that you know you're somewhat i presume sought after a bass player you play in a lot of different bands mm-hmm. you've had these opportunities come to you and obviously you're open to doing them all. Mm-hmm. So you must have a certain level of talent. The fact that, you know, when I see you play with Kevin Bright, I presume that, that one has to have a certain musical know-how to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've probably worked very hard at, at getting at achieving a certain level of musicianship. Well, yeah, I'd like to think so. But, <laughs> um, well, yeah, and and I think if... if uh, you know, truth be told, I think that that going back to the uh, to the Jocko thing, you know, uh, I'll tie it in with the Jocko thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I, I I think that you know the 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 reason why the the Jocko thing was so monumental for for me and most other you know bass players and musicians was that he left you know he opened the door to us being uh, musicians like being uh thinking about writing horn right. uh parts thinking about writing string parts you know so yeah being an, a phenomenal bass player but seeing us inside this uh thing that is music right um and uh yeah and i i i think that's always been a i mean i i kind of recognize that about about the jock with the pretty early and I always wanted to do those things uh, you know do those things and he kind of made it okay for us to do that you know to, to be want to be just more than a you know uh, and to me before uh, I'll, I'll you know speak more directly to, to, to the question uh, you know my you know my inability to like to read basically um, has never really been connected to that side of my brain right because like now uh, you know, if you want to, if you write stuff, you, which is what I figured out about the whole electronic music thing, is that A, you have a computer. Uh, for me, A, you have a computer and you have something that's plugged into it and whatever you play into it, whatever you hear, um, it'll generate a chart for okay, you. Okay, because I was going to ask about that. Yeah. So you, you, I know you compose. Yeah. You've done film scores. You've yeah. done scores for live theater mm-hmm. so that is how it's done it's yeah um and actually it's even more simpler than that uh uh marco in that i've never really had to you know make make charts for any of the things that i've done hmm. um i basically just 
yeah, I, you know, I, I play with, with people who are like, you know, in a lot of ways are unbelievably talented and, you know, amazing, but they all have really great ears. Uh, and maybe that's why we're friends. <laughs> Cause I, you know, you, you know what I mean? Cause that's all I got, you know, I don't have the other, but do but, you think you always had that or do you think you trained it? Uh, did I always have great, like uh, yeah. great years? That's assuming that I, that's what I meant. But uh, uh, yeah, you know, uh, I, I think I've always been able to figure out uh, a melody or figure out a rhythm uh, by hearing it. Right. Uh, and that's why I think, you know, whatever it is, laziness or whatever, I just never you know, made the thing of having it to be a visual thing. Okay, so when we were doing the Johnny Goldtooth shoot uh-huh. and you said, I got to go for a walk. And yeah. I said, what are you listening to? Yeah. And you're basically learning your part from yeah. that album. Yeah. And it was just a matter of, I don't even know if you'd heard that before that point. But yeah. So it's just another part of listening to it and automatically knowing what you needed to play. Was it that simple? Uh, yeah, because um, like when you, when, once, when you develop, when you develop an, an ear, and it doesn't have to be, and you start to hear um, the movement of the music, like the, the chords. Uh, and if you know what key it's in, mm-hmm. um, like if you have a reference key, I don't have perfect pitch or anything, but if you have a reference key, you have a fixed point in your, a center in your mind, which is the key of the song. Right. And then you start to hear all the changes in relationship to this. So you know how the, the lay of the land, so to speak. And it's, it's just by listening to it. So in that video shoot, yeah. For example, we took we did four versions of that one song, mm-hmm. and when I listened back to that four versions, they're yeah. all very very different. Uh-huh. And so your playing is very very different in each one of them, uh-huh. right? Yeah. And but that's not planned ahead of time. It is just something that happens. It yeah, it's just something that happens. And and I think uh, you know you bring me to the point about uh, about Gar- playing with Kevin and Gary. Um, because it's it's a really long relationship that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, We're talking what, 17, 20 years? Something uh, like that? Yeah, we did our first gig as the Sisters Euclid in, in 1996, in September of 1996. Now, we, there's been a few times where we took, we've taken breaks, you mm-hmm. know? But uh, yeah, we've been a band for a long time. But um, yeah, and that, you know, that that is a, it's a really special thing that we have um, because... Um, you know, like when Kevin wrote tunes, he would just bring the tunes to the to the orbit room, and that was kind of like our workshop. <laughs> so there's no rehearsal. No, of there was never any rehearsal. In fact, the running joke with that band um, was when we had a rehearsal, it was awful. <laughs> Not the rehearsal, but the gig after that right. was horrible. So there was something in the danger of like just, uh, you know not having just have for me it was even a double danger because the other guys are all like really competent with this reading thing <laughs> well but does Kevin write everything out yeah he would write out oh, okay. you know he would write out the you know he would write out the chords and you write out the melody that uh, Rob at the time the, the keyboard player would 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 play uh but you know it was always stuff that we had you know not, not really done we'd never done before you know so we had to figure out a way of, uh, you know, I had to figure out a way of 
playing it and not, you know, dropping the ball. But how do you know if you if you're not sure what chord he's going to play next, and you've never heard the tune? Oh, okay. No, no. Yes. So when I'm talking about charts, I mean, um, there's there's two there's a, a couple of different kinds of charts. There's a charts that are completely notated, right? Uh, like a la a, a classical music chart. Right. Um, and uh, they even go, like if there's chords in the charts, in, in classical music, they'll write out the notes. Right. Uh, like on a, like th- in, in height, kind of. What people started to do after that, they, you know, they figured out that you don't really need, like the reading thing is already so difficult instead of writing out things on like multiple lines, we know that this thing is an A minor. So forget that part of it and just write A minor on the top right, of it okay. and just write the melody, right. right? So the A minor stuff, I have no problem with. Right, okay. It's the notation that I have right. a problem with. And thankfully, I play an instrument that I can get away with it sometimes, <laughs> but, you know. Okay, so the other thing I, need, I, I needed to ask you is... Yeah. Um, musically, you're all over the place. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's not just, you don't just play one type of music. Mm-hmm. You play several very different kinds of music between hip-hop, jazz, blues, mm-hmm. funk. Where does that come from? Because a lot of people don't do that. I mean, I, I know some people do, but a yeah. lot of people don't. And to be proficient at all, is that a difficult thing? Um, <clears throat> you know, that... That primarily, uh, that comes from actually those, the experience that I've just talked to you about, like we've talked about, um, you know, the, the basement scenarios, um, the, you know, being with people that absolutely were huge fans of music like yourself, um, uh, you know, just getting together and listening to stuff and listening stuff together as a, like a kind of a communal experience, you know, um, not all those, those people, like not all those guys in the basement, you know, that I'd hang with, we're all into the same kind of stuff. We were into similar stuff, but we'd all bring, you know, we, we were all willing to bring to the table, uh, you know, our, it was a safe space, you know? Right. So if somebody's got into some, went off on some tangent and got into some weird stuff, and bought an album, he, he could bring it, you know, we'd all listen to it, we'd all go, ah, I don't know, or whatever, you know? But there was always that thing that, so I got it from a very early uh, age, I got experience, uh, um, you know, introduced to a lot of different stuff. But you Just, must be open to it, though, right? Uh, yeah, I, and I think, I, yeah, I, and I think that was, you know, that comes from being, uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's a result of the time that I was, I come from, mm-hmm. you know, because that's what it was all about, you know, just doing, doing your thing, you know, whatever that was. I remember my, t- you know, teachers in high school say, you know, when you got in trouble, you know, you'd be doing something bad. They go, um, hey, are you, you know, in quotation marks, doing your thing, <laughs> you know, it's so, but, but, you know, that uh, you know, goes a long way. Mm-hmm. Because it it really is about uh, you know you know choosing something to do that is more about self discovery. You know, if you're a musician, it's one thing. If you're a you know if you're a mathematician, it's all like 
it's you know it's all like it's connected to something and you know my teachers like my my elders at that point made that abundantly clear to me and I might have not known it at the time but I do now did you did you ever doubt the choice you made of becoming a musician was there ever a difficult time uh yeah, I mean, there's uh, there's there's continually different uh, difficult times with with being a musician. My wife's a dancer, so you know, uh, being an artist is is there's always con- continually you know uh, difficult times, mainly because of economics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things aren't always uh, you know what they seem. Uh, Did you ever think about going back to your backup plan to film? No, no, you know, I, you know what, I never, I, I, I never did that, uh, did that. But I have had uh, day jobs though, along the, along the, the way. Right. And and it just turned out that the 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 day jobs that I've had have been amazing, because they, you know, they kind of, uh, I'd still gig at night, you know, um, but they were all willing to accommodate the fact that, you know, I would, I'd be in late. Um, and, and they just, you know, they just kind of appre- uh, appreciated that and they went along with it. And they, if I had to take time off for touring, they would, they would, uh, it was, it was cool. So you're involved in like a number of different musical projects. Mm-hmm. How do you choose those? I don't even know how many different bands you play with right now. Um, yeah, you know, there, there's a thing about uh, Marco. There's a thing about, about about playing in like playing music and playing in bands. Like, I I really only play with you know not that many bands, but like, sometimes I do stuff that isn't with those bands. It's like a something else. Right. Like it's like maybe a I don't know. Like maybe it's a club gig. Maybe it's a corporate thing. Or and you know I'll only see that group of people like maybe four times a year or something or hmm. whatever, you know, but then there, there are groups of people that I play with that I, you know, I've known a long time and I have a relationship and we, we have this thing together, you know? Uh, and so, yeah. Uh, again, it all comes out of, uh, yeah. Comes out of the basement, man. <laughs> it all comes so out of the basement. It was an important place for you. Yeah, it was, it was. <laughs> and if you knew Scarborough basements at that, uh, <laughs> At that time, man, like with the, the the pine paneling and the, you know, the little bar, like everybody's parents always had that bar with that puffy thing on <laughs> yeah, the yeah. on the top, you know, yeah, and, and they all had the same uh, like little, um, you know, paraphernalia things, yeah. like the shaker and the big tall spoon, <laughs> you know, they were all yeah, everybody had the same thing. Okay, so. You're involved in a project that I think is going to take you away for a little while. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Because uh, uh, with my the uh, dance, the oh yeah, with my 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 wife, yeah. yeah. So tell me about that. Yeah. Please. So my wife um, is a dancer and a dance teacher, um, and uh, she has a uh, she also has out of the you know out of the teaching thing she has a, a dance company. Um, and uh, her dance company is going to be touring uh, India this uh, January, mid-January to mid-February of 2018. And um, it's a really interesting project uh, in that she's uh, she's collaborating. The the kind of dance that that Joanna does is uh, it's a classical dance from uh, of North India, 
and it's called Katak. And um, she is collaborating with a, uh, with a dancer from uh, uh, Saskatchewan who has a dance company uh, um, called Fada Dance, and they do contemporary dance, like Western mm-hmm. contemporary dance. So it's, the, it's, it's a collaboration between the, the two forms, um, which, you know, is like a, a, a bit of a natural for, you know, being that Joanna and I are like uh, our partners and we're doing this because, you know, Joanna uh, does this very particular kind of dance that's uh, from India, but Joanna is from Whitby. So, uh, and I, I just told you my own type <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, it, it, it's just like, it seems to be a, a natural thing that the collaboration with contemporary dance uh, would, would, would come about. And so, yeah, we're doing this like six, five or six city tour of, of, of India. I'm doing all the, the, the music. A lot of it is going to be improvised as the show happens because that's, uh, that's an essential part of the, of the dance form, the Katak dance form, is that most of the music is improvised and so is the dance. Okay. So the, 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 the two things happen uh, sort of hand in glove. So are you working off her dance and she's working off your music? Yes, generally, although I think for this one, like my, because there's this whole element of contemporary music, my uh, role in, 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 in the performance of it is not going to come so much in, the, in terms of, uh, you know, sort of being tight with, with Joanna's uh, footwork which generally what happens because in Katak the dancers have bells on their ankles and it's, it's, they're another percussion instrument basically. Um, I think my, a lot of my role in this is going to be kind of like, uh, is going to be uh, like kind of an ambient nature. Mm-hmm. Um, more kind of, in a sense, like uh, sort of harmonic, like symphonic right. uh, as opposed to like, you know, so does, does your approach to music change, whether it be doing that on stage or playing with Sisters Euclid or playing with Luanda Jones? Like Absolutely. I, you know, I mean, you know what? It's, that's an interesting question because now that I think about it, yeah, because my roles, my roles in each of the, th- the, you know, the musical situations that I'm in um, are slightly different. Um, you know, depending on the kind of music it is, mm-hmm. depending on how many people are in that band, um, you know, in, in, in situations where it's, for instance, I'm playing with a, a young singer uh, by the name of Mimi Obonsawin. Um She's a great singer from Sudbury, Ontario. Uh, she just moved to Toronto. I think it's been like a couple of years or something. But she... Uh, <clears throat> uh, she she's put out two records and uh you know the the records were were done like real with proper producers and like a lot of production you know um and then uh she's kind of decided that she wants to you know pare it down and you know not have like you know six or seven people in the band Mm -hmm. and so it's a trio so we have to try and figure out when we're doing those songs there's no 
way we're going to be able to, uh, you know, sort of compete with what's on the record. Right. Because there's, you know, there's a quarter of the people in the yeah. trying to do it. So we, we have to reimagine stuff. So I think what I'm, my answer to the question is that depending what the situation is, um, musical situation is, and how many people are in the band, it's like my ability to reimagine the music uh, changes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'm just the bass player and I gotta, I'm working within the confines of being, you know, um, thinking about something, you know, like the way like maybe Paul McCartney would think about it or the way say uh, Larry Graham would think about it or whatever, right. you know, but in other situations, I, I, I come where I'm giving, given a, a lot more responsibility or it's more open. Um, I have to think about being not only, you know, the Paul McCartney and Larry Graham thing, but I got to think maybe I want to maybe sound like a, a synthesizer or a, or a, a keyboard because right. we need to fill that space. And so I, again, you know, I, I need to be more than a bass player. I need to, I need to think about stuff that's happening usually out, out of my register and right. happening somewhere else, you know? Uh, but I think, you know, having good years, uh, makes you make that, makes that not such of a big leap because you're already, you kind of know what that sounds like. You know what the structure is, you know how to read the form, you know? So it's, uh, yeah. So my, my role changes depending on that. I presume love it all, but is there, is there a preference to like, is there things that you'd rather be doing or a style you'd rather be doing or is Part of what you love is the fact that you can do all these different things. You know what? I love, I love doing all of them. Uh, you know, I can honestly say that because, because, the, because the things are so different and they require different things for me, mm -hmm. from me, uh, or my role changes within them. Uh, I, um, <clears throat> it, really, it really allows me the, the ability to, to be okay with those roles. You know, um, like I'm not really, you know, I'm not really like a big, like kind of solo guy, like bass player right. kind of guy, you know, you know, in the last probably 12 years, I've really been like part of falling in, you know, being in love with this instrument is like being, uh, has been sort of reinventing uh, myself inside that instrument and being okay with it being just like a groove instrument. Mm-hmm part of a rhythm section and just being, you know, just being tough. Um, there isn't, you know, there isn't like this need to constantly like to be the virtuoso thing. I think it's great. Like other people, you know, other people will, will, uh, you know, will feel that need to do it and they'll go off and they'll explore it and they'll do amazing things with it. Right. You know, I'm just sort of not into that so much anymore, but uh, we, you know, and it's opened up, Again, like I say, it's opened up uh, the way I think about myself within the uh, the structure of the music in a different way. So it's not just like rhythm section and soloist. It's like rhythm section uh, arranger, soloist, mm -hmm. um, composer even, you know? So I don't know, did that kind of answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because I, I just I, you know I know I know the world has changed and, and the the musical world has changed drastically yeah and I presume it has affected 
every musician out there because the gigs aren't as prevalent as they used to be or as plenty as they used to be or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I presume that some people have to do things that they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. But I also get the impression that some people love to do so much that mm-hmm. it's anything related to music is good with me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> uh, I, I, you know, I, th- I, I thank the stars that I, I, um, I can do what I've loved all my life. And, you know, yeah, like, the, you know, you, you pay a little bit of a price for it sometimes because you don't, you know, get to buy that new pair of shoes that you want, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever. But then, you know, you think, do I really need those <laughs> pair of shoes? Right. You know, but man, I'm having a good time anyway, you yeah. know. So, um, yeah. So, and, and, you know, that's not to say that I, I, I don't, like everything I do, I absolutely love. That's that's not the case either, no. you know. It's varying degrees. It's, not it's varying anybody, degrees. Really. It's yeah. It's varying yeah. degrees of love. That's what it is. <laughs> Are you goal oriented? Do you set goals for yourself, or like I just wonder, as a bass player, you're often put in the support role. Mm. Um, but I know that you you do have like this project with your wife, um, like some of the the movie and theater soundtrack or whatever that you've done. Mm. Um, I presume that's that's more initiated by you or that opportunities come your way. But mm-hmm. do you set goals for yourself or being a support musician? Is that difficult? Yeah. You, you know, um, I, I don't think the two things are kind of uh, uh, opposites of each other. Um, like, you know, I mean, like setting a goal and like being uh, in a support role. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think they're sort of mutually right. excluded. I just meant like, you know, Kevin will put together a project and he would want you for a gig. Mm-hmm. That's a call you'll get. And mm-hmm. it's not like you can have a goal to do that gig. That just comes your way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I see what you mean. Like, uh, right. In that respect, I do set uh, goals for myself. Uh, and a goal that I've set uh, for myself that I've kind of started a long time ago. Um, and I just never, ever... Actually... Marco, it's a good thing that we're talking about this because it's putting the the fire under my my uh, pants seat to, to to get going on this. I've had this uh, this idea to do a record, and I've actually started it. I have one song, and it's uh, uh, it's it's an album of these hits of going folk tunes. Okay. Not really folk tunes. Some of them were kind of like show tunes, like from films and stuff. Um, and there, uh, there was a lot of uh, songs, like especially uh, from like the late '50s and the '60s, that were written by this one uh, composer arranger, and uh, uh, he worked with this one singer. Like she recorded most of his his material. Uh, and she also was one of the top playback singers in in Bollywood at the time. Right. Um, but they they did a lot of stuff together, and they he wrote some really great great songs. And I've had this idea rolling around in my bots forever of retaking ten of them and re-recording them with singers from India, Goa, uh, and but completely reimagining them though. You know, and I, I, and I know that sounds kind of like, you know, it's going to be kind of sentimental and like, you know, blah, blah, blah. But 
my idea is like, you know, is not, yes, inherently in that concept, there's sentimentality, mm -hmm. but like, I'd love if this record, you know, was like kind of had, uh, you know, like a Brazilian thing happening with one of the tunes that lent itself to that, you know, right, right. and then another one had like a Jamaican dance hall thing happening with it, you mm -hmm. know, and another thing had like a, you know, like a, an electronica thing happening with it. it and, it, you know, just so that's my my golden project maybe in my golden years I'll, 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 i would have had it done you know well, i'll be looking forward to it. do you do you consider yourself a going like do you still have that connection to that culture i you know i i i actually do deep down inside of me i i i you know because there's too many things about me um that you know my wife and i have a place there so we go back there every winter oh i didn't know that. yeah okay. yeah we're like well she's doing a tour this year but right. uh for the last uh, pretty close to 10 years, we've spent two months a year there. Oh, okay. So in the winter, of course. Uh, so we, uh, so every time I go there, I learn a little bit more about why, you know, why I th think a certain way. And that's not always a good thing. It, it, it's like, you know, sometimes you just realize there's things about yourself that annoy you, you know, <laughs> yes. and, and you go, well, where did that come from? And you go, oh, you know, you think about it and you go, oh, it's from my dad or it's from my whatever, my, mm -hmm. you know. And then you go back to the, to a place and you realize everybody here is like this. Right. You know, and, and I think, you know, go like there's, there's definitely that I see things about myself in Goa all the time, you know, but, uh, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of my life, the formative part of my life was in Africa too, mm -hmm. you know? So I think that the, the two things together kind of uh, balance themselves in a certain way. So I don't normally, like, I, yeah, I, I, I see myself as being going and you know what I see myself as being? I see myself as being a Canuck that was uh, born in Africa but somehow behaves like this place called Goa that nobody's ever heard of. <laughs> was that was that a weird transition when you came here? Was uh, it difficult or was it really easy? Uh, moving here to, to Canada, you yeah. mean? Yeah. Uh, you know, it wasn't because I actually went to boarding school in England right. for a little bit. But that bit. was like an, a year, a year yeah. and a half or something, yeah. right? So it, it wasn't that big of a... It wasn't that big of a, And, you know, I was at a point in my life where... You know, when you're when you're 12 or 11 or whatever, like everything is exciting. Mm -hmm. So it's like it was. This was just like the biggest exciting thing ever. Like you know, going to a different country, and you're gonna get to live there, and it's just gonna be all new people, and it's gonna be snow. It's gonna be <laughs> snow. Yeah. Well, I had gotten a little bit of snow in England, but I I gotta tell you, the first time I saw snow in England, having come from Uganda, right. was mind blowing to me. <laughs> It was absolutely, like, I couldn't believe that this stuff was actually coming out of the sky. And it was falling on the ground, and it was staying there. Sorry, but you had no concept of snow before then? Like, None. Yeah. I'd never seen it. I had never felt it. I had never, I mean, I kind of saw it in movies, you know, right. like uh, like Christmas movies and stuff uh, in Africa. But I just didn't know what it was. And when I first saw it, it was, it blew my mind. Because it was like, 
Well, first of all, I realized, I always thought it was like, you know, when you're a kid, you don't know. Like, yeah, especially yeah. if you've never seen, you don't yeah. know anything, right? So when, when, you, when I saw it on TV and stuff, I just thought it was like cotton, which it was, yeah. enough, right? <laughs> but I just thought it was like cotton flag and thing. And when I first saw it in England, uh, it was, and I felt it, and I felt how cold it was, and it was like hard, like crystal, like ice. I was like, wow, man. And nobody's making it like in a fridge somewhere and throwing it at me. I was like, oh, man, this is unbelievable. <laughs> and now you're doing your best to get away from it. Yeah, now I'm doing my best. <laughs> like, I've had enough of it now, yeah. you know? And, and so when do you go to India? We leave actually on the 31st of uh, December. Oh. Uh, the, uh, and we're going to be there. We, we need, there's a lot of things we need to set up before people get there because there's 14 people traveling. So there's a lot of, and we're doing all the, you know, we're doing everything basically. But this is the first time. This is the first time we've done a, a tour of this magnitude. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so it's, it's a lot of work. But we leave the 31st and the tour doesn't actually start until the middle of January. and goes to the middle of, uh, of February. Wow. Yeah. Well, hopefully we can catch up afterwards and you can tell me about it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, like, to take a little bit of my my you know, my bad film skills and, and try and film it and make something out of it. You should. Yeah. You should definitely do that. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, my pleasure, Marco. Thanks. Take care.